0: welcome to living word ministries with director and bible teacher debbie blank each week debbie examines current events through the lens of end times bible prophecies please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org now let's open our bibles to focus on truths from god's word with debbie blank
1: growing up i always heard of saint francis of assisi then the patron saint to animals though now he's been relegated to the patron saint of ecology. When we visited the town of Assisi in Italy, however, I learned a much more detailed story of this faithful servant of God. His passion was really evangelism. They say that he used to evangelize the animals because he was so passionate about God. He shared his true faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he went, often using props such as an nativity set in order to show people the truth that he was speaking about the gospel. Much like the apostle Paul, he had an encounter with Jesus that caused him to give up a life of luxury, to be a faithful, true servant follower of Jesus Christ. Today, as we open Revelation, we're going to see 144,000 faithful servants of Jesus Christ who gave up their lives in service to our Savior. In viewing their lives, we've got to ask ourselves if we too are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, willing to give up everything for him, even to the point of death. I'm Debbie Blank, praying God will speak to you today about your relationship and walk with Jesus. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Back when we studied
0: Revelation chapter 7, we were introduced to a group of 144,000 from every tribe of Israel who were given the assignment of preaching the gospel to a world in tribulation. Now, in chapter 14, they have come completing this assignment, having given their lives in faithful service. The Lamb is standing with them in a magnificent scene. They stand blameless and pure before God's throne, singing a new song that no one else could learn. They have shared a unique assignment at a unique time in history and have experienced God's complete faithfulness to them. Here is the satisfaction and reward of using their lives to faithfully complete God's assignment. God has selected us to live in this time in history for His specific purpose. Are we being faithful servants?
1: Those are great questions, Jackie. I love the way that you focus on the uniqueness of how God called them and what their job was. The same thing was happening with Francis of Assisi. I was so intrigued when we were in his city to learn really the truth about him that I want to share a little bit about that because it is exemplified in the 144,000 and really God would have those attributes that he had be exemplified in us too. Of course, we know for the past 2000 years, Jesus has called his followers to be faithful in following him in everything we do, but we're not seeing that a lot in our culture these days. As we look at the life of St. Francis, because he became a canonized Satan in the Catholic Church, he was a worthy example of faithfulness. He was born into a wealthy family. The father owned not only farmland, but a textile business, and he expected Francis to go into the textile business with him. However, Francis was a rebellious youth. At the age of 14, he was known as a drunkard, a rebellious, disobedient son who wanted nothing to do with his family's business. He instead wanted to be a knight, this noble person who went out and fought the enemy and came back a hero, the modern day warrior. The only problem is he had no experience, but he did have a wealthy family. So when the opportunity came up to go to battle when Assisi fought Perugia, he was dressed in the finest regalia. He went out to battle, but of course, Not only did his city lose, but he was captured because he had no idea what he was doing. Because he had this wealthy armor, he was seen an aristocrat who they could then get money from his family in order to ransom him. For a year, he sat in prison while they negotiated with his family. They finally let him out. But during that year in prison, he had a vision from Jesus Christ. That vision changed his life. So after being released, he gave up his family and his fortune because all he wanted to do was rebuild the church, make it not only look better from the outside, but spiritually mainly from the inside because he had seen a lot of corruption in the church. And he was quite frankly ashamed at all of the wealth that the church displayed and felt that they should be giving it to the poor. So he chose a life of poverty while he was sharing the gospel. Now, in his desire to rebuild the church, he took some fabric from his father's warehouse to get money to refurbish the church. His father was so angry with him and the decisions that he was making that he went before the bishop and the bishop required Francis to give back the money that he had basically taken. So he gave back everything he had, and he stripped down completely naked and gave his dad the clothes that he had on him. So the bishop took a burlap sack and threw it over him, tied his waist with a rope belt. And that's how St. Francis is known today, as wearing a brown burlap bag in poverty while he shared the gospel worldwide. He had such a passion for sharing the word of God that he went down to Egypt. He went to places where the Muslims were to share the gospel with the Muslims. They kept him captive in one of those Muslim areas for quite a bit of time, but mainly because they liked him so much. He was very friendly and they wanted to hear the gospel. Even the head sheik had said at one point that he was almost ready to receive the gospel message. So Francis was charismatic in his presentation, but the most important thing is he loved Jesus Christ and he wanted Jesus shared with everyone. So he had all these followers who were going over Europe to do that very thing. Interestingly enough, his mission was cut short because he died at the age of 44, but not before he had experienced what's known as a stigmata, which is his body had shown the marks of Jesus Christ, with nail marks in his hands and his feet, and with a piercing in his side. He was such an example of faithfulness. He didn't care about the world, he didn't care about money or prestige. He cared about people and sharing the gospel. And again, don't get lost in the fact that he's the patron saint of the animals or of ecology. That's simply because he was always sharing the gospel everywhere he went. And my guess is he was probably practicing on these animals out in the wilderness so that he could perfect the message that he might be more eloquent in sharing about Jesus Christ. So think of that man, as you think of these 144,000 that we're going to talk about, how faithful they were because their whole heart and life was devoted to Jesus Christ in doing whatever he led them to do. And that's how God calls us to live today. It's interesting
0: that there's that much more to know about St. Francis than normally we do know. And to know that he really was such an attractive personality. He must have been exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit in all those different ways to people so that he became attractive to people and didn't push people away. And yet he was coming along at a time when the church was decadent and needed to be confronted about that decadence. So it's interesting to see what he was able to achieve through the Holy Spirit working through him And we have that kind of challenge today. And as we look at the 144,000, how remarkable these people are, these men that have been called out of the 12 tribes. And we first saw them in Revelation in chapter 7. So maybe we need to go back and kind of touch base with that first before we continue.
1: That's a good idea. Let's look at that in Revelation 7. The passage goes through verse 8, but we're only going to read the important parts right here. Because it says in the first verse, after this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now this, after this is after the opening of the first six seals of the scroll that Christ was holding in his hand. Then it says in Revelation 7, 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the seas saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. It says in verse three, they were sealed as bond servants of our God on their forehead. Now, a bondservant in the Greek is a doulos, and according to the Old Testament explanation of it, if a person was a slave and they were freed for whatever reason, then they could be free to go about their business, or if they really respected and honored their master, they could choose to stay with their master. They would then have their ears pierced and something put in their ear to show that they were free but they chose to stay with their master. That was a decision that they made because their master was the one that they wanted to follow. So that's what we do as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And these 144,000 were called that very thing. They were sealed on their foreheads. Now, we don't know what that seal is. It could be a mark, it could be a cross, it could be something that only spiritual beings saw. We don't know what it is, But whatever it is, that mark would seal them and protect them for as long as they were sharing the gospel, which appears to be probably the first half of the tribulation period.
0: Well, it reminds me of the sealing that was done for the two witnesses where they had their 1,260 days where they were to preach the gospel. And then when that was done, then that was over and they were killed and then later resurrected. So these bondservants, 144,000 bondservants, are also sealed and protected for however long it is that God wants them to be proclaiming the gospel to a world that's in real peril. We're in the last hours here of the world, and yet God has chosen 144,000 of these individuals to go out and preach the
1: gospel. And why are they needed? because the church is gone. We are taken away with the rapture and when we are, the Holy Spirit is removed from working on the earth as he had worked during the church age. So now these 144,000 are gonna focus on sharing the gospel with the Jewish people because the last days are given for Israel to draw them to God, to help them to see who their savior is. So, of course, it makes sense that God would seal Jewish evangelists so that they can share the gospel. So let's now move fast forward to Revelation 14, starting in verse one and going through verse five today so we can see what happens with these 144,000. The passage reads, and I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. That tells us just what we saw in Revelation seven, that God's name is written on their foreheads, having his name, the name of Jesus and the name of his father brings them both into this because we know that God is one. Jesus is God, God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible tells us that God doesn't share his glory with anyone, which means that Jesus and God are only equal if they're one. So again, this tells us that they were standing with the Lamb in Mount Zion in heaven. You'll remember that we've seen numerous places in Revelation where the heavens were open and we saw the altar in heaven and we saw the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And now we're seeing Jesus standing on Mount Zion in heaven. This is not on earth. Hebrews twelve twenty-two. we learn... But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That tells us that Mount Zion is also in heaven. The new Jerusalem is in heaven. And that's where Jesus is. That's where these 144,000 are. That means that they've been martyred and they are now up in heaven with Jesus. As we look at these last three and a half years of the tribulation period
0: as i look at how that seal that we weren't sure exactly what the seal was in chapter seven and now we see that it is the name of god and of jesus on their foreheads whether we can see it or not somehow or another it's obvious they have authority from god and they are the possession of god we've talked before about when you have something that's valuable and you don't want to lose it you put your name on it The name of Jesus and of God the Father is written on their foreheads. It's obvious to whoever they are preaching to that they are authentically from the Lord.
1: They are identified with God. Many of us wear a cross around our neck, or maybe we carry our Bible with us or something to identify us as a follower of God where they are sealed with the name of God on their forehead, So they're identified with them. And the name of God represents his character. People are going to see the character of God through these faithful witnesses. How did they become faithful witnesses? Well, Romans ten nine and 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God rose him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So they were called by God, they were sealed by God, but only because they had believed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as their Lord and Savior.
0: So going on to verses 2 and 3, it says, And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth.
1: This is very unique because verse 2 says, I heard a voice from heaven. It doesn't tell us who the voice is. It doesn't tell us if it's Jesus, if it's an angel. We just know it's a singular voice like the sound of waters and the sound of thunder and the sound of harpists. Why that's thrown in there, I'm not sure, because then when we go to verse three, it says, and they sang a new song before the throne. It says they, not a voice. So in verse three, we're talking about the 144,000, whereas in verse two, we're talking about a voice. And then, as I mentioned, we get to verse three and it says, these 144,000 sang a new song before the throne, a song that's never been sung before and before the living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 because they had been purchased from the earth. They had a specific calling from God. They were faithful in that calling. And because of that, they lost their life. They were purchased from the earth. And only those were allowed to sing this new song. That goes back to what you had said earlier, the idea that each person has a unique assignment, has a unique purpose from God. Ours isn't the same as the 144,000. Yours isn't the same as mine. We are uniquely called and gifted by God to do his bidding. And we can only know that bidding if we are faithful followers of him and his word, listening to him, obeying him and doing what he calls us to do.
0: So no one else has had or ever will have that same experience that the 144,000 had. And then it also talks about them and what they had uh, done as far as giving themselves totally to the Lord and totally to their mission. Verse 4 says, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So we find out quite a few things about them. It starts out that they were virgins. Do you think that that's in a spiritual sense as far as their dedication and their devotion
1: to their mission to the Lord? I think so. And remember that when we talk about not defiled with women or keeping themselves chaste, a person who's married is not defiled by women or doesn't defile himself with women because they're married. And that's what God tells us to do is have a relationship with our wives. And being chaste means being pure spiritually as well as physically. So they could be married and still be chaste. I think a lot of people look at this and and your terminology is a little different than the new American standard that I have here. It doesn't say virgin. It says woman and it says chaste. So, uh, you know, I just see them spiritually as well as physically being pure, sexually pure, obeying God's rules for their lives from his word regarding their relationship with God. And then when it talks about them again, being chaste, no idols, not following any other gods, but the one true God being spiritually pure. So that's an example of what God calls them to be and what he's called us to be. We in this day and age have a problem with sex. It's one of the biggest issues, and people want free sex. People who are married, we want pornography. So many people, they say, up to 85% of men look at pornography, and a large percentage of women do too. So when these people are pure, they're not defining themselves with anything that would dishonor God. And it says that they were purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to His Lamb. That means that they were martyred. They were willing to give up their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. Are we willing to do that? Luke nine twenty three tells us, whoever wishes to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And if we deny ourselves, and that means everything is focused on Jesus Christ. Can we be a follower of Jesus Christ and go to church on Sunday morning and then pretty much ignore God the rest of the week? Can we call ourselves a Christian, maybe even make a professional faith and then live like the world? Unfortunately, most of the Christian church is doing that. But that is not a true follower of Jesus Christ. These guys are examples of genuine followers who are willing to give up everything and they're to be chaste, they're to be pure. And it tells us too that they follow Jesus wherever he goes. When we follow Jesus, just like Luke 9.23 says, we don't follow our ways. We don't follow the ways of the world. We make our goals to be like Jesus, to follow and walk like Jesus would have us walk. That means we need to know what God says in his word and how he calls us to live. We have to be seeking his direction. We have to be listening to the Holy Spirit to know what it is individually our assignment is, what God has for each one of us. It really did impress me where it says they followed the lamb
0: wherever he goes because That means they're close. They're nearby all the time. They don't wander off. They're right there, right with him. And so that relationship of being near to the Lord helps them understand what it is that's being required of them and gives them the strength and the direction to do it, to follow through. So they've completed their mission successfully because they've never been very far away from the Lord the whole time. They're just right there following him.
1: And then we look at verse five, which says, there was no lie found in their mouths, Boy, lying, deception, that's Satan's tool. And we see that throughout the book of Revelation. And Jesus warned us in Matthew 24 not to be deceived. So the opposite of deception or lies is truth. And since there's no lie found in their mouth, they're speaking the truth. The Bible says that we are not to lie or steal or deal falsely with one another. And John 8 31 32 Jesus said if you continue in my word then you're truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free not deceptions or lies that's why he also says in John 17 17 sanctify them in truth your word is truth we must follow the truth not the lies and what we're seeing in our culture today lie 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 what we're seeing in our churches today unfortunately are things that are against the truth of God's word. But in these, no lie was found in them. And it says they were blameless. You know, there's only a few people in scripture that God calls blameless. Job is one, Noah's one, Abraham's one. Even Paul says in Acts twenty-four sixteen, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and men. God didn't call him blameless, but he was doing his best to maintain that conscience. Are we doing that so that we can be blameless before God?
0: If we want to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, like the 144,000 were, The Gospel of Luke gives us some instructions in chapter 14. So what are those instructions?
1: This is very important. These are Jesus' own words to the multitudes, not just to that select few who were his close disciples. So he tells us in Luke 14, 25, Now great multitudes were going along with Jesus, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes after me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. What he's saying here is not hate as we think of the word, but to love less. What he's saying is we have to put Jesus Christ first. First and foremost, before our fathers and mothers. And by the way, in that culture, the most important respect you could have for anyone was for your parents. So even before them, even before our wife, our spouses, our children, and our brothers and sisters, Jesus has to be first. And then in case we missed what he's trying to say here, he says, yes, and even his own life. We need to love our lives less for Jesus. So in other words, it's got to be Jesus first, ourselves last and others in between. That's J O Y as we get into the Christmas season. Jesus first, others and yourself. That's the first thing in you know, order to be a true disciple, a true faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Then he tells us in Luke 14:27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We talked about that from Luke 9:23. That's our requirement to carry our cross. And that is to bear our sins and ask forgiveness for our sins. It's not carrying the burdens of the world on our shoulders, recognizing the cross as a symbol of death. So we need to die to sin. We need to die to this world and then come after me or follow me. And then the third thing he says in Luke 14 is the toughest for most people. He says in verse 33, So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. That's really tough. If you look at the rich young ruler in scripture, he came to Jesus and said, oh, I've done all these great things. What else does it take to follow you? And he says, sell everything you have and come follow me. And he walked away dejected because he had a lot of wealth and he wasn't willing to give it up. Our wealth become our possessions, and they take the place of Jesus Christ being first. They're preeminent in our lives a lot of times. And Jesus says, you got to get rid of them. In other words, we have to get rid of people. We have to get rid of ourselves. We have to get rid of sin. We have to get rid of our possessions to follow Jesus. Does that mean that we have to divorce ourselves from our family or literally sell everything we have? No, it does not. St. Francis did give up everything of material means. We have to be willing to open our palms of our hands and let him have it. It's because after all, he gave it to us in the first place. If you'll notice there each time he didn't tell us what we had to do. He told us instead, you cannot be my disciples unless you do these three things. So ask yourself, are you willing to hate your family, love them less than Jesus, love your own life less than Jesus? Are you willing to take up your cross daily and follow him? And are you willing to give him everything, your job, your possessions, everything you own? If you are, then you are disciples of Jesus Christ. If you're not, then you need to ask Jesus to help change your heart so that you can be a true follower of his. And by the way, I've found that when I've given up those things to Jesus, it's been hard because that means he can take them. He has chosen not to. He has allowed me to keep my family and our possessions and my life, but they're all his. And if he takes them away today, I will be hurt, I will be sad, but I trust him because he is my Lord and Savior and he knows what I need and he will guide me through everything that he wants me to go through to teach me and train me to be more like him. In these last days, are we listening to Jesus' words? Are we ready? Are we faithful? As he tells us in Matthew 24, to be faithful, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ means that we're loyal. We're steadfast. We're living out our faith that we have in Jesus Christ, not just putting a rubber stamp on who we are or checking off things that we think we need to do for Jesus, but instead totally devoted, totally surrendered, a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do people see a change in us as they saw in Francis of Assisi or in the Apostle Paul or in Peter? Huge change when their lives were turned over to Jesus Christ. Or will we be living like the world with this get out of hell free card that we think is going to get us into heaven? But we might be really surprised when eternity comes and where we end up if we do not turn our hearts over and become faithful followers of Jesus Christ.